Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. Today, I've got somebody very exciting for you. I've got Professor Bart Kay. He's going to hopefully help us understand the human body, how the human body works, and what is best to consume to help the human body as well. So, Professor Bart, if you just want to introduce yourself to our audience, tell our audience a, a little bit about your background and, and where you're coming from. All right. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. No pressure there. I've got to distill down 26 or seven years of, uh, of academic experience into a, into a short hour-long discussion about what's best for the human body. So a uh, good challenge. Always up for it. All right. So yes, 26, 27 years in academia, something like that. Um, started out my first foray was the physiology of rest and exercise. It's usually just called sports science. Exercise physiology was my particular specialism there. Um, after a few years of teaching that, I decided to branch out and um, got qualified as a human nutritionist. And then from there, for the final part of my academic career, I decided to branch out still further again into cardiovascular pathophysiology, what causes heart disease, atherosclerosis, all of that. So it's kind of quite a broad base there of these three different specializations. And then overarching all of that is expertise in some really dry material, pure and applied statistics, statistical inference, research methodology, that kind of thing. So that's kind of my four claims to fame, if you like. Um, did some work with a bunch of pretty high profile organizations um, a few years back as well. Examples, a funny little rugby team that wears black a lot. <laughs> um, I, I did some work with those guys prior to the 2011 World Cup. Um, I've worked with the NRL referees in Australia. Um, and both the New Zealand and Australian Defence Forces have had me on at various times to do some work with some of their boys. Um, so that's kind of the professional uh, application, I guess, the consultancies. And then teaching, researching, publishing research. Yeah, so there you go. That's, that's kind of the, the life of an academic. I'm now a full-time social media influencer, content creator, I've given up any pretense of, of working in academia these days. Thought much better of it. Um, this is a much better thing, I think. Different challenges, but um, yeah, don't think I'd go back. What about your personal journey? Maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about your personal journey, why you decided to go down the road that you have. For everybody, anybody listening who doesn't know, Bart is now a low-carb advocate, um, as we are here at Human Nutrition Lifestyle. But I'm guessing it didn't start out that way for you. No, um, I jumped on the keto bandwagon, if you like, um, about 26, maybe 27 years ago, about when I actually started out in academia. Well before it was cool and fashionable, actually, I was like, I, I looked at it very early on and went, yep, that makes sense to me. I jumped on that bandwagon then. Um, about seven years ago was when the um, carnivore diet started to become the thing. And I looked into that and that made even more sense than the keto. So I've actually been ostensibly carnivore 90% upwards now for about seven years. And in that time, I've had a couple of periods of for challenge purposes, really, for three or four months where I've been 100% carnivore, no plant material at all for months at a time. Um, and the health benefits that I experienced by going 100% carnivore were just incredible. Like, I mean, I could describe them to you, but the best way to, to discover these things for yourself is to, is to do it, really. With the one caveat that I need to be really, really clear on, please don't change your diet markedly overnight from one thing to any other thing. Always do a transition. Take six weeks to slide from one diet to another. Do it steadily and slowly. Don't decide to go carnival tomorrow and do it. That is a mistake. 
it will mess you up. Okay, right, there you go. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thanks for saying that back because I have reiterated before that nothing should change overnight. You should do things gradually um, mm. and seek professional help if that's what you need as well. Uh, so you should always be careful with changing nutrition. Um, it's not as easy as what some people make it sound. So it's great that you should reiterate that point. Now, you say you've been keto, you say you've been carnivore, and all of those particular diets, uh, and don't like to say diet, but we'll say nutritions, um, mm -hmm. are low carb. So that's going without carbohydrates. Uh, now, lots of people will just think, okay, yeah, we know that you can survive a little while without carbohydrates. Lots of people listening to, to me will realize that carbohydrates are non-essential, yet they still can't grasp the fact that you don't need them. So maybe you can enlighten us as to why we don't need them and the processes that our body goes through to yep. tell us we don't need them. Absolutely. It always stuns me that people can't seem to quite get their heads around this concept because non-essential means precisely and exactly you don't need them. Um, the exact dietary requirement for carbohydrates in human beings is not one single gram ever. Now, why do I say that? Because people will often say, yes, but, 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 here are some processes in the body that require carbohydrates. Now, it's absolutely true. There are a number of tissues and processes in the human body that cannot survive without carbohydrates. They absolutely have carbohydrates as a required component part of their functioning. The mistake people are making is they therefore assume that because there are things in our body that require carbohydrates, that we must eat carbohydrates. No, you have a system, a metabolic system by which your body is able to manufacture all the carbohydrate that it requires. It's called gluconeogenesis. You can look in any textbook you like and you will find it there. This is not some crazy thing we made up 20 years ago, 27 years ago, when we decided we wanted to go keto. No, we've known about this for the best part of a century, I think. Human beings absolutely have the capacity to manufacture all the sugar they need. You don't need to eat it. And when I say sugar, I can use the term sugar and carbohydrates reasonably analogously, reasonably interchangeably. Pretty much all carbohydrates break down to the exact same thing, and that is blood glucose, that is, um, that is sugar. The one exception is fructose, which is dealt with slightly differently by the liver, and uh, it breaks down, uh, well, not so much breaks down, it is built up directly in the liver to, to triacylglycerol, triglyceride, if you like fat um, everything else becomes glucose in the blood pretty much so sugar is it required in the diet no not at all none zero so how do we get these carbohydrates back if we require glucose um, for all the yeah. essential things that happen in our body we, yeah. we need glucose to survive so how do we get it Right. Okay. What happens is there is a bunch of metabolic reactions which are catalyzed by a bunch of enzymes which take non-glucose precursors that are gluconeogenic substances and it chemically alters those things and chops and changes and basically takes these things and turns them into sugar. What are those things? They are the glycerol backbones of fat molecules. They are one or two of the amino acids and also monocarboxylates like lactate. They're the, they're the gluconeogenic precursors. And so your body slices, chops and dices, puts it back together. Oh, look, now we've got sugar. Um, it, it's, a, it's a pretty simple process once you get your head around it. So do... Uh, we have talked before about the mitochondria in, in the cells that require, uh, well, that, that tend to, to use pyruvate as their starting point of energy because glycolysis, as I've spoke about before, actually happens outside of the mitochondria. Um, yes. But, but does, does that mean then that by breaking down the triglycerides um, to get the glucose, then it goes in a different pathway or does it go the same way? Does, does it go through glycolysis the same way? 
Okay. So if your cells are using glucose for energy external to the mitochondria, that is a process. Well, it's one of two processes. One of them is glycolysis, and the other one is glycogenolysis. They are not the same thing. They are slightly different. Muscle fibers, as it turns out, skeletal muscles use glycogenolysis exclusively, and other cells tend to use glycolysis. Glycolysis is the splitting of sugar into two pyruvate molecules to release some energy. Glycogenolysis is the splitting of pyruvate directly out of glucose starch. That's the, ostensibly the difference between the two. Uh, it turns out that it's energetically favorable to split the pyruvate directly out of the starch, and that's why muscles do that, because they have a much higher energy requirement than most other cells. Once glucose has been split, either in the form of glucose or glycogen starch, in the cell cytosol, the result is two molecules of pyruvate per molecule of glucose. That pyruvate is then either oxidized to acetyl coenzyme A, which is the first intermediary of the tricarboxylic acid or TCA or Krebs cycle, or it's reduced to lactate and then usually exported to the blood, depending on energetic circumstance at the time and the requirements of other cells and all of that kind of stuff. Once it is oxidized down to acetyl coenzyme A through a series of enzymes called the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, which is basically irreversible, then it's an absolutely identical process that it goes through from that point on into the mitochondria through the electron transport chain, etc. Um, and then the other source of acetyl coenzyme A is the beta oxidation of fatty acids in the cell cytosol. So it's, it's absolutely identical from the acetyl coenzyme A point onwards. Yeah. So, so just, just to break it down for people there, then the triglyceride is actually doing both processes. The triglyceride is doing the glycolysis and it's also joining the Krebs cycle at the acetyl CoA stage. So you're getting everything, your glucose and your fatty acids to power your Krebs cycle from the triglycerides. Ostensibly, some of the glucose will have come from, from glycerol backbones. It will have gone through the liver. It will have gone through the Cori cycle. It will have been built up into new glucose, gluconeogenesis, the, the generation of new glucose. So yes, uh, that is that is possible you can and you do survive perfectly well without consuming any external exogenous glucose in your diet whatsoever you are capable of generating all the glucose you need yeah, yeah. so that's, let's break it down even further then for people who are thinking okay yeah, maybe, maybe we lost them a little bit in the science there but what that mm -hmm. basically means is if you are eating uh, high fat, because generally when you are on a low carb diet, it means that you have to be on a high fat diet as well. Um, mm -hmm. at, at opposite ends of it, because you've got to get your energy from somewhere. So you, you are, you're ingesting the fat and you're making triglycerides and then going through the process of gluconeogenesis. And that's what gives you the energy. Well, partly, yes. But by the same token, your cells are perfectly capable of running on fat in terms of from the acetyl coenzyme A level down. Unfortunately, muscle cells in particular cannot function without glucose. They must have glucose in the same way that brain cells must have glucose or you die. That being the case, that's why your body has evolved this process to generate and to, and to, to manufacture glucose precisely because about 5 million years ago, we came down from the trees, we stopped eating fruit and leaves and things, and we decided, let's eat these yummy animals instead. And then the world froze over, so there wasn't plant material to be had that was available to us. We had to live on the animals. So our body needed to have a way to make its own glucose from that point on, and that's why it's evolved. It's that simple.
You also mm. mentioned protein there as well, um, saying mm. that we could get energy from protein. Um, yeah. We know that's not essential. We don't really want to be breaking down proteins. Proteins, we want to be using them as, as building materials, as structural, yeah. functional materials in the body. Um, but mm. proteins can be broken down, can't they, into glucose? Yes, generally that does happen to any degree to speak of, only in an emergency situation. When you have already used all the fat stored on your body and there's no glucose left either. Precisely for this reason that you just outlined, why would your body want to eat itself when there is anything whatsoever that it can use alternatively, like fat? If there is a choice between using fat or protein for energy, it's a no-brainer. Fat is what is going to be used. So these people that say, oh, if you don't eat a bunch of carbohydrates, you're going to eat your own muscle cells, absolute rubbish. There's no science behind that. There never was. Why would your body do that? Yeah, true. So, <laughs> so uh, go, going forward with that as well, then, can people approach a low carbohydrate diet wrongly by potentially prioritizing too much protein and not enough fat? Yes. There is a species appropriate species specific diet for human beings. There is a kind of middle of the bell shaped curve in terms of the balance between carbohydrate, sorry, not carbohydrate, Jesus, what am I saying? Um, fat and protein. And I usually, when I'm starting somebody out, I will usually start them at around about 60, 66, 33, or, you know, give or take in there in terms of the so-called calories as fat and so-called calories as, um, as protein. There is an individual variation around that, which is ideal for each individual person. It seems to be at a pretty narrow band, around about 5% either way. That seems to be optimal for in terms of function, in terms of health, in terms of all of that kind of thing. If you eat too little protein, you will suffer. If you eat too much protein, you will equally suffer. There are consequences to both of those things. So there is a balance it does seem to be around about 50-50 in terms of the mass of protein and the mass of fat, or 66-33, give or take, in terms of so-called calories, because there's basically twice as much energy per unit volume of fat as compared with protein. Having said that, keep in mind that when I'm talking about protein, I'm talking about protein and not meat. Meat is three quarters water so the amount of protein in meat is not the volume of meat it's about one quarter of that so generally what i say to people is to get this pretty well right here's what you do look at your plate before you start eating is it about seven eighths meat and one eighth fat or so visually by volume yep jobs are good in yeah, brilliant. I like that. That's something visually to, to take away. But also, yeah. I think if you are just eating normal, the way that the food comes normally off the animal, so yeah. you're not chopping off the fat, you're not purposefully going out there to find lean cuts, you're not purposefully yeah. finding lean steaks, lean mints, things like that, then you yeah. will be getting the correct ratio anyway, because a lot of people yes. aren't going to want to count, aren't going to want to break down their plate and think, oh, is this the right amount? Is that the wrong amount? It's, it's if yeah. you go out there and purposefully seek those lean meats, then you need to have the fat uh, to back it up. Because let's face it, yeah, like you say, going back to our ancestors, I mean, none of those had calculators. You know, it was just a no. case of chopping the animal up and, and eating it as it came. So Yeah. You don't see paintings on the walls, do you, of, of ancient people entering in their values to chronometer to make sure they're doing the right thing <laughs> no, no. no your instincts are good the only instinct that you have which is not good nutrition wise is your instinct to crave and seek out sugar that only exists precisely because our access to sugar and carbohydrates 
for the vast majority of our existence on this planet was near none. And it was a rare treat when we could get it, and it's an easy source of energy, and so we are programmed to seek it out and, and take it when we can. There's no good satiety signaling on that. You will eat carbohydrates until the cows come home if they're available to you. And in our modern society, we have made them available to ourselves. And as a consequence, we are sick, we are fat, we are diabetic, we're riddled with cancer and heart disease, and we're all dying 20, 30, and 40 years before we should, on average. Yeah, all again, it, it, pretty good. If, you, if you do look back um, to our ancestors, again, you can see that they, they perhaps did have some carbohydrates, but it was very seasonal berries for maybe a couple of weeks of the year. Yeah. And then, um, you know, maybe a few tubers if, if times were, were, were really, really barren, but it wasn't the staple of, of their nutrition. The staple of their nutrition was every single type of animal produce they could, they could get their hands on. Basically, that's the, mm -hmm. that's the stuff they was after. So yeah. we should be the same yeah. because biologically we've not changed. You know, society has no. changed, but biologically we are the same people we were millions of years ago. Yes, 10,000 years ago or so, which is an evolutionary blink of the eye, we suddenly for some reason decided, hey, wouldn't it be a good idea instead of how we have been living, why don't we gather together in huge conurbations of people, make cities, build things. Uh, in order to do that, we're going to have to feed ourselves in a way that we haven't been able to by chasing animals around the plains. I oh, know, let's grow grasses and eat their seeds. Great idea in terms of getting energy, worst possible idea in terms of nutrition, the toxins that you get from plants, et cetera. It was the thing that started a couple of really bad um, trends in terms of human health. And we can look at the skeletal remains of humans and see exactly when agriculture started because there were negative results immediately. The only worst thing that we've done as a society, nutrition-wise, than adding carbohydrates and plant material in, was industrial seed oils. That's for another day. This oh, one's no. about cars. I, so I, uh, yeah. I, think, I think my audience are well up to speed with the seed oils. I, uh, I shout that one from the rooftops. That is mm. uh, bad, bad food, and that needs to be uh, eradicated out of everybody's nutrition as fast as is humanly possible. Absolutely. <laughs> or, or quicker. Or quicker, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, look, if you're not going to give up carbs even, that's a mistake to not give up carbs in your diet. But let's say you're not going to do that at least get the seed oils out because they will kill you. No two ways about it. Is it anyway. uh, to, to, just to touch on the seed oils while we're here, um, yeah. is it yeah. the fact, because uh, I've talked about polyunsaturated fats before, and yeah. we can get polyunsaturated fats from, from animals. Um, yes. So it's not the fact of that these seed oils are polyunsaturated fats. It's mm -hmm. the oxidization process. Is that correct? It's oxidization, it's deuteriation, and it's ratio of fatty acid profile. It's all three of those things. And they lead the human body to a hugely, vastly pro-inflammatory situation if you base your fat intakes on mono and or polyunsaturates and try to keep your saturates low. You should actually do the exact opposite. You should eat the fat that comes with the muscle meat of animals. So what you really need to do is actually develop a good relationship with your local butcher and ask your local butcher not to trim your meat. Or if, or if they, you know, if they are trimming all their meat, get them to sell you the bag of offcuts. Yeah. Yeah. Add butter. That, that's, that's it, that's that's it basically. It's, 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 yeah. it's getting the ratios of saturated fat a lot, lot higher than what we are doing now because we're eating a lot of processed food, because everybody's eating a lot of processed food, the ratio of polyunsaturated fats is super high, which is unnatural yeah. for, for us. So Correct. we need to get more saturates. Um, but yeah. also, there you talked about calories in the uh, old inverted commas and people yeah. thinking, why is my about putting inverted commas over calories? Um, yeah. This is the debate I have with almost everybody who wants to debate it nowadays about yeah. how calories are not energy and about how we cannot use calories 
from food. So maybe you can elaborate and help people understand what calories are and why we just can't use them. Right. For some reason, and the reason is parsimony, really, and it's also laziness, frankly, the scientific fraternity at large, and I don't mean to be sexist using the term fraternity, let's just say the scientific community, fine. They have decided that it's acceptable to refer to the energy contained in food substances as being measurable using the metric known as the calorie. What these buffoons will often also do is say that the reason that that is perfectly appropriate is because of the interchangeability of energy from one currency to another currency according to the dictates of the conservation of energy. And they will also usually invoke the first law of thermodynamics as their reason for that. Okay, here are the problems with it. If you want to convert pounds sterling to the greenback dollar, you need a mechanism by which to do that. You have to have a middle person you have to have a banker that will change his majesty's sterling into the president's greenback dollar you cannot take your greenback dollar into the corner store in kettering for want of a better place i don't know why i said kettering but why not anyway you can't whack that greenback dollar down on the counter and ask that shopkeeper to take that greenback dollar for a litre of milk. They won't accept it. There is no, there, that is not legal currency. It is money in the same way that calories are a form of measurement of energy, but they're not spendable in that shop. You have to change it to pound sterling in order to make that purchase. Can the human body encapsulate heat and use that heat for energy for metabolic process is the machinery in place the answer is no the human body cannot do that okay calories are heat they are specifically explicitly defined scientifically as heat They are measured explicitly as heat. A calorie is the amount of energy, which is a construct, a concept. It's the amount of energy required to heat one milliliter of water by one degree Celsius. That is a calorie. The calories that you see on the labels of food are actually K calories, thousand units of calories. So a K calorie will heat a litre of water by one degree Celsius. But first you have to liberate that energy to cause that change in temperature of that water. How do you do that? You burn it quickly in a bomb calorimeter by passing a large electrical current through it and basically vaporizing it, releasing all its heat energy. And that heat energy takes the actual, for want of a better term, physical form of photons in the infrared range of energy. Those photons, those particles or disturbances in the electromagnetic field, if you like, propagate out through the field space, and then they hit the water molecules and excite those water molecules, and those water molecules, as a result, get hotter. That's what a calorie is. Is that what your body does with food? The answer is no, it isn't. Your body does not do that with food. What your body does with food is it changes the mass from one form into another form, from carbohydrates, free fatty acids, and much less often proteins, as we've discussed already, and even less likely than that, hopefully, alcohol. All of those things can be changed physically from one form into another using chemical reactions. The outputs are two different forms of mass, the exact same amount of mass, in the form of water and carbon dioxide. And some of the energy released during those processes is encapsulated and used to create a chemical storage form of energy known as ATP. 
very different process. Pound sterling, greenback dollar, both money, both currency. One of them is recognized in the corner store in Kettering and one is not. That's the same in the human body. So to say there is X amount of K calories of energy in this chocolate bar, we only know that if we burn the chocolate bar to vapor. That's not what the human body does with it. So that number is going to be vastly inaccurate to the actual effective energy contained in that chocolate bar that a human can absorb and use. That's the argument, basically, in a nutshell. Yeah, I think the the reason why there is calories out there is because there's there's no actual measurement. We cannot measure the amount of energy we're going to get from any certain food. Correct. Just everybody's going to react differently to each particular food and each particular macronutrient yep. within the food. Going to do a different mm. chemical reaction within their body to take out the amount of energy. So you do yes. not know exactly how much energy you're getting from any given food. So to be in mm. A deficit of any kind is just ridiculous. If anybody's telling you anything about nutrition and they start to talk about calorie deficit, walk away straight away. Um, yep. It's not something that we can measure. It's not something anybody can measure. Um, mm. So it shouldn't even be in the nutrition world. <laughs> no, quite right. And even if what you just said was wrong, and it isn't, it's absolutely spot on. Most people don't understand that the number of calories listed on a nutrition label is legally allowed to be out by up to 20%. So even, even if they were accurately translatable into effective energy absorbed by a human being, you're still 20% out. Yeah. Up to 20% out before you even start. Yeah. So in order to say, I'm going to be in a so-called calorie deficit and therefore predictably lose fat which they'll often refer to as weight, which is equally ridiculous. I have to so, gr so grossly, vastly under-eat as is unhealthy in order to get that result. And it's not sustainable. It's not a useful tool. Get the word calories out of your lexicon, people. And anyone that says calories to you, which will be almost everybody, turn that person off. We're done here. <laughs> You're ignorant. You do not understand science or physics. Sorry. Yeah. I think that's that's great. We'll we'll draw a line under calories now, <laughs> just in case we're ups upsetting too many people. We we like upsetting people, but uh, we want to keep it nice and happy. So <laughs> yes, yes, we'll go back to it. Upsets Greg do sit quite a bit. Apparently. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll go back to carbohydrates because yeah. it is something that people question all of the time. And as Bart said at the beginning of, of this nobody needs one gram of carbohydrates ever you know you don't need carbohydrates in your nutrition but then you'll get all these yeah but what's and what about this and what about that and i do work with quite a lot of athletes and quite a lot of athletes will say well surely there's got to be a sweet spot there's got to be a point where um, i start to need carbohydrates if i'm exercising a lot if i am putting in high intensity work then mm -hmm. there must be a point where my body's going to say okay now i need the carbohydrates because I'm starting to run out of energy. What would you say to that? Okay. As an exercise physiologist, first and foremost, just to remind folks on that, the thing that determines your capacity to exercise at the level of carbohydrates at the peripheral level in the muscle is the resting level, storage level of glucose starch glycogen in those muscle fibers you start out with a level x and you start to exercise and that level starts to drop when it gets to a certain level that compromises that muscle's ability to contract it's a self-protecting mechanism basically it's the it's the peripheral governor we've all heard tim noakes talk about the central governor which is the level of glucose in the blood as determined by the brain or measured by the brain, the peripheral governor is the level of glycogen in the muscle fiber. If you undertake high intensity exercise training protocols on a weekly basis, your resting level of glycogen will go up. You will store more glycogen precisely in order to be prepared for a more intense exercise program. That's irrespective of whether you consume carbohydrates in your diet or not, because remember, your body is capable of producing all the glucose it requires for all processes from non-glucose precursors. It's called gluconeogenesis still. Yeah, great. 
So you do not need to eat. And then people say, oh, yes, but okay. When you're using your muscle glycogen during an exercise protocol, it will draw glucose down from the blood in order to keep that glycogen up. And that will drag the level down in your blood. And then the central governor will kick in and you'll become tired. To which the response is, yes, except the liver senses that the blood glucose level is dropping. And if you're fully adapted to a fat-based diet, your rate of gluconeogenesis will kick in more readily, more accurately, because you don't rely on pouring it down your neck. So it will counteract it. I think the key there is like what you said early on is you have to be fat adapted. You can't just mm. expect to go into it in a week's time, in two weeks time. You know, you just can't right. expect to, if you've been a high carb athlete and then you say, right, okay, I'll try out this low carb, continue yeah. with the same training program, continue doing your low carb. Yes, it's going to bite you. It is not going right. to work because like you yes. say, you've got to, you've got to not only be training specific, but you've got to only be, to be training specific with your nutrition specific as well at the same time. They've both got to run uh, alongside each other. Uh, yeah. I'm an endurance athlete, which I know you perhaps think is, is not great either. But It's a form of illness. It really yeah. is. Come and lay on my couch, yeah. Matthew. Let's talk about this. I know, but I have been experimenting over the past sort of couple of months with no carbohydrates at all, going just about 100% carnivore and mm -hmm. seen very little if any uh, detriment to performances in fact i've actually gone up power on my cycling so my cycling power has got better uh, with zero carbohydrates so that is proof to me that your body can produce as much glucose and as much carbohydrates as as you need but like you say also do, do once you get fat adapted and once you start putting in those training specific things does then your body actually spare glycogen? Um, it can do. I mean, it, it's a very complex interplay. And obviously the, the net result of all these positive and negative feedback loops back into this and back into that are all geared around keeping you, A, alive, and B, able to perform to the best of your ability as a secondary consideration to first of all let's not allow your homeostasis to become disturbed outside the range that you can live in so i mean it, what it what it comes back to at the end of the day is that your body will adjust if you give it sufficient time and stimulus to adjust that's where most people get this wrong especially athletes they what they don't understand is that there is a transition period. There is a, there is a period where your performance will suffer when you change your diet from a, a carb-rich diet to a carb-poor diet. And a lot of people don't understand that that period can be up to 26 weeks, not 26 minutes or 26 days even, 26 weeks. We're talking six months. So you have to be prepared to suck up that performance decrement such that it might be for that period of time for the benefits of actually a, a fully fat adapted athlete performs as well, if not better than a carb, a carbed up athlete any day of the week and twice on Sundays actually is what, what I've found in my experience. And secondly, the vast improvement in your general overall health inflammation and probably lifespan as a whole by consuming a species-appropriate diet. And then if we could just get these endurance athletes to stop it, that would be great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I know you guys are not going to. I know you're going to do what you do and all power to you. But, yeah, it's, it's not something that we're genetically designed for. It's, it's a physiological challenge beyond the pale, if you like, for me. It is. It's a stress on the body. It's another stress on the body that you could probably do without. But yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but you talked about um, professional athletes as well. So is that the case then? Why professional athletes? Why you don't see it in professional athletes? Why low carb is very few and far between in a lot right. of uh, elite athletes? Is that because they just don't want to go through the transition period? For a lot of athletes, there is that. They don't want to go through that period. They don't want to have a period of performance decrement. They can't afford that. They won't be selected. They'll be dropped out of the team, whatever. If they're in a team sport, if they're an individual athlete, a lost season could mean 
a lost career, let's be honest, it could. So it's partly that. However, that said, there actually is a much larger percentage of professional athletes on low and zero carbohydrate diets than we most of us know about. Here's why. Actually, a fat-adapted athlete performs better than a carb athlete any day of the week, and that includes in high-intensity sports, team sports even, weightlifting sports, combat sports. Why aren't these athletes screaming about this from the rooftop? Because they don't want their competitors to know. <laughs> it's a secret. It's an advantage that they, they want to keep under wraps. I could name you three current All Blacks who consume only meat and fat. I can name you three or four more former All Blacks who are the same. I can name you three or four endurance and ultra endurance athletes who are carnivores. One of whom holds the world record for 100 miles running. Yeah, yeah. For example, okay. Yeah. One of my current clients is a professional MMA fighter who eats carnival, for example. Yeah. So what you're saying These is that, it, that the professionals are doing it, they're just not telling they us are. they're doing they're it. They're just not telling them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you believe... Again, why that, would they? Yeah, why would they? Yeah, true. So do you believe then that carnivore is the absolute optimal diet for optimal nutrition for everybody then, or, or is keto, a ketogenic diet the optimal nutrition? Why, why is carnivore and keto different and which one is potentially better than the other one? Okay, quite unequivocally, the ideal diet for human beings, all human beings, because we're all the same species, we're all 99.9 something percent genetically identical. We all have the same organs, the same organ systems, the same background, ostensibly. The appropriate diet for a human being is 100% carnivore, without any question. Why do I say that? Because those are the genes selected for, and the genes selected against are the genes that work against that. So, Darwinian fact, it's not a theory, Darwinian fact, evolution points that way. We should live as we have evolved. We should live in our niche. We are a specialist nutritionally, just like every other animal on the planet. There are no generalists. Um, that's what we should do. That said, the keto approach is vastly better than a mixed macro approach vastly better than a plant-based approach, vastly better than any approach telling you to consume any significant amount of plant material or carbohydrates at all. Absolutely unequivocally. Facts, science is in, we're done. Yeah. That's, that's, that's there are great. others who will, who will just as vehemently argue opposed to what I'm saying, and we, we've all heard those kind of characters, to which what I would suggest to you is just cast a discerning eye over the looks of these characters and the way they present, the way they hold themselves, how they look. Because if your health is destitute, you can't hide that. It shows. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of these characters, if you don't eat your fruits and vegetables, you might die. Those kind of characters. <laughs> just have a look at these guys. For, for just... just, just just freeze frame it if you like and just look at these the videos these guys are presenting and, and, and tell me they look like the people that you would want to take health advice from. Yeah. And I, that, I, guy, I, that guy I've just pretended to be for a few seconds there, a lot of people don't understand I'm significantly older than that bloke. Huh. Anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I understand totally what you're saying. And there is uh, lots of evidence to show that carnivore diet is the optimal nutrition. But carnivore has been infiltrated of late with 
fruits and yes. honey and particular mm. non-starchy vegetables, which are creeping in to lots of people's carnivore yeah. nutrition. And they're still saying that it's a carnivore nutrition. They're still saying that it's an animal-based nutrition. Yeah. Can this type of nutrition be better than a 100% animal produce style carnivore? Absolutely, unequivocally, without question, no. There is no place in the human diet for carbohydrates, for plant material, for fruits, for honey. No. Absolutely not. And we all know who we're talking about. That guy is wrong. And, and I've covered it on my on my channel in my videos multiple times and also on my other platform where I also post videos as well, which people might want to take an odyssey of discovery to find out where that might be. And if they undertook such an odyssey, you'd probably find it. Well, um, just enlighten us and tell us a little bit about your favorite subject, which is the Randall cycle. Why, mm. why these fruits um, and animal produce cannot be in the optimal nutrition together? Right. You have a series of interactions in your metabolic pathway, which are collectively pulled together and referred to as the Randall cycle. And I don't know why it's called a cycle because it's not a cycle. It's an interactive series of positive and negative feedback loops where this discourages that or encourages the other thing or whatever else. Here is the take-home message, the simple take-home message. If you have a lot of carbohydrate trying to push through the metabolic pathway, pulled, waiting for oxidation for energy, if you like, that carbohydrate will discourage the use of fat for the same purpose. So remember right back earlier on in the discussion, we spoke about from acetyl coenzyme A onwards, it's identical. So you've got carbs over here and fats over here, both trying to push through the same door. Okay. If you have a lot of fat trying to push through that door, it will discourage the use of carbohydrate. So what we've got is fat and carbohydrate cross inhibiting each other, blockading each other, both trying to push their fat bottoms through the same door at the same time. That causes problems for us. It causes inflammation. It causes obesogenesis because of the inflammation. It causes elevated blood sugar. That's the cause of type 2 diabetes in a nutshell, the Randall cycle. It's nothing to do with insulin resistance, which is another construct, another concept. Tell me what company markets a meter that measures insulin resistance. Yeah. There isn't you, can't, you can't measure it. <laughs> you can't measure it because it's a construct. It's an idea. It's it's someone's, um, you know, there are many, many careers hanging on this construct, but it's not a thing. It's not something you can, what, what is measured in people when they want to diagnose diabetes type two is the area under the glucose curve and the area under the insulin curve. Both of those are independent variables of one another to, to a large degree, both with a number of different causes for what those responses will be. Anyway, that's for another day. The Randall cycle basically ostensibly tells us without any question that we are designed to get our nutrition from one of fats or carbohydrates at any given time mixed with some protein. We can survive on a carbohydrate diet, subsist for a short period. Should the hunt be unsuccessful? Should there not be enough mammoth to take down? Should the, should the herds have moved on? Should the winter be particularly harsh? Whatever. We absolutely can scrape around and get some carbohydrates together and survive on those. It's one of the reasons human beings have survived events globally that other species did not. That and the fact that we ate a lot of them out of existence because we were smarter than they were, sort of thing. Um, but one of those diets, the one that's rich in carbohydrates and poor in fats, as opposed to the one that's rich in fats and poor in carbohydrates, 
one of those diets is absolutely demonstrably destitute of nutrition. You can survive on it. There's energy in carbohydrates, yes. But is there nutrition there? No. That's why 84% of everyone who ever attempts a vegan-style diet quits that diet, 84%, within five years, and 90% of those people tell us that the reason they had to quit was because of catastrophic health failure born of nutrient deficiency. There you go. Yeah. So you, one of those diets is appropriate. Yeah. It's you, the high you, fat, you often hear of uh, you often hear of quite a lot of vegans turning over to carnivore. I'm yet to mm. hear of a carnivore turning vegan. <laughs> Don't know. That's right. If it's there's any out there, probably not. I have never heard yeah. of one. So. No. no. But why why then do you think that I've I've spoken to lots of carnivores? Uh, my me myself, I've I've done this and and. At the moment, I'm trying to be kind of 99% carnivore. I do have a coffee every now and again. But why do you think amongst carnivores, then, yeah. <laughs> why, why is it amongst carnivores and a lot of carnivores that you speak to say that they trigger around this 90 to 95%? Why, why then, if, if optimal carnivores so great, why is everybody not doing 100%? Why are we hovering around the 90, 90%, 95% mark? Because we lack self-discipline and we're hedonists. <laughs> That's simple. Because at the end of the day, a 5% transgression against a 100% carnivore diet, you would think if life was fair and just and reasonable that you might get a 5% reduction in your overall health status. Because that would be about what you'd, you know, you'd think. Hmm. It's more like 50. You will not believe how much better 100% is than, than 95% you will not believe how much better the health is without the coffee. Yeah. For example, or without the, whatever it is, your 5% transgression is. I found that repeatedly when I've done short periods of 100% carnival 90 days at a time, usually for a challenge, for a video series or whatever else. And I always said to myself, man, this is so much better. I don't know why I don't just do this all the time. And it's because, like most people, I lack self-discipline and I am a hedonist. I enjoy my coffee. And I will cop that really quite vast reduction in my health status associated with that coffee, purely to subserve my desire to have that pathetic crutch, really, because that's all it is. Yeah. So we know biologically that 100% carnivore is the absolute optimal, and then it's basically down to your own lifestyle choices and how yeah. much you really want the other things to creep in to let you slip away from that 100%, which is where you should be. Yes. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. No, for no question at all. Mm. <laughs> so, so people listening to this then will probably think, okay, I fancy a go at this. You know, I fancy a go at this carnivore. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe, maybe some of them might have been keto for a while. Maybe some of them might not have even tried keto so how do they even begin to start changing from the carbohydrates in their nutrition to something that's aiming themselves up to the optimal nutrition which we spoke about yep okay so as i said right at the beginning let's repeat that caveat again don't change your diet hugely overnight do not do that that will mess you up you need to let your body adjust your microbiome needs to adjust you need to grow the enzymes or produce the enzymes really in your body that you hitherto do not have because you haven't been using those pathways, etc. This is an extended period of time for a full transition. In terms of the change of the diet, I advocate for a six-week period minimum where what you do is in the first two weeks, you half the volume of carbohydrate in your diet and replace it with animal fat at a one-to-one -one energetic level by calories because what else is there to, to even get any kind of gauge on this? You need to do that steadily on a day-by-day -day basis. You don't 
go two weeks and then drop 50%. We'll drop 50% and then wait two weeks before you do the next drop. It's not a stepwise, it's a rampwise transition. So you're going to have to plan. You're going to have to use one of these programs to record everything to keep your transition as, as, as steady as you can. You're going to have to be prepared. You're going to have to have your... Um, your menu sorted out for the for this for the whole six week period before you start really so it's not a stress and you don't have to think about it and you don't have to worry about it and oh what am I supposed to be having today and what am I not having etc. Put the put the work in up front put the distress of planning it all before you go through the distress of physically doing it. Um, that makes it much easier that way and then there's no thinking about it there's no worrying about it that's what it is. Um, and then in the second two weeks, you half it again. So then you're down to basically a quarter. And then in the last two weeks, you half it again. And then after that six weeks, because you've got so little left, then you can drop that last bit out. But you've basically gone like so, haven't you? Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's great. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased you said it exactly like that because we at Human Nutrition and Lifestyle run four to eight-week programs and we do exactly that in the first couple of weeks we'll take you down a little bit and then take you down a little bit more but I always like to tell people who don't want to work with a coach some people want to do it themselves so mm -hmm. I always say to them look there's 365 days in a year change mm -hmm. 365 things one each day you know and sure. then this time next year where are you going to be so I think you can choose the amount of days you want but but like mm. it's like like you say um you know it takes a good six to, to eight weeks don't expect it to to happen in a few weeks absolutely your other option of course over the next 365 days is don't change a damn thing and you will end up exactly where you're heading <laughs> yes yeah very well said yeah so uh you mentioned it a little bit a moment ago but but where can everybody follow you and find you and learn lots more than dig deeper into the things that we've spoke about today right one of the best places you can find me is right there at my main youtube channel that's the channel where i tend to be abrasive i tend to use very short words monosyllabic words quite a bit i uh, usually then what i will do is hyphenate them and put other words with them uh, to make it amusing in some way um it's for clicks it's for notoriety it's it's to give me a, a, a point of difference other than my vast knowledge of, of human nutrition etc of course um it works it works well i wouldn't change it whatever if you don't like that style if you find that too much if that's too confronting if you don't like naughty words i have another channel which is called the institute for health science integrity that's the professorial channel. That's the collar and tie. That's the no naughty words channel. I have a third channel, which is called the Meat Militia, which is where you'll often find the, um, or the field marshal is a character there. He runs the show there, him and his mate Yellow Ted. That's another sort of, it's, well, while we also educate there, it's a bit more comedy based. Um, I wish I had time to equally share on all these channels. I don't. It's, you know, whatever. And there's a few other channels as well on the YouTube that you'll find. They're all linked, actually, in the show notes under all my videos. You'll find the channels there. I also post videos on another video sharing platform as well, which, as I say, you know, you could take an odyssey of journey and you'll find it. Um, it's pretty straightforward and you probably need to spell that O-D-Y-S-E-E -E to find it but there you go, do that <laughs> and you'll find over a thousand videos there and there's some even more subversive actually, they're the ones I had to take down off YouTube because YouTube decided to start policing their rules a bit differently and they were a bit problematic so that's where they are the, um, the old catalogue if you like, they're all still there for people to go and get some amusement from the main thing is to understand that that's character acting and I'm actually educating by subterfuge. Um, and if you don't, as I say, if you don't like that style, fine. Go to that other channel that's the collar and tie channel. You won't find any of that kind of behavior there at all. You'll just find the science. What you'll also find is about one-tenth of the subscriber base. Interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, uh, yeah, people, I think everybody likes a bit of comedy, that. don't they? Everybody they do. and, it, and they yeah. like a bit of swearing, even though they say, oh, you're offending me. Well, <laughs> yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. So there you go. That's where you find me, basically.
Yeah, great. Uh, thank you very much, Bart, for putting all of your content out there. It is, like you say, it's entertaining and it is also very, very knowledgeable and, and you'll pick up lots and lots of things from it. If you enjoyed today's podcast with Bart, then really go and find him. Just type in his name anywhere. It usually pops up um, and yep. you can follow, follow the links uh, to where he is. So thank you very much for joining us today, Bart. It's been great. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matthew. And we'll have a return visit. I'm sure you can come to my channel one day soon too. Brilliant. Thank you very much.